Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. You have found your way to the 224th episode of the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. And today we're talking about three more, even more, things that I wish I knew when I started fly fishing. Now, no regrets, right? This isn't necessarily something that had I started this 25 years ago or whatever, that I would be a much happier person. But there's things that I can look back on now after spending time fly fishing growing and maturing as a person and as an angler, things that I look at and say, you know what, if I would have been doing this, there probably would have been some significant benefits to it. And that's what I want to talk about. Now, this is at least the third podcast in this suite. Uh, I actually have a couple about fly tying as well. So these are just things that I think are helpful for new anglers. And then honestly, the three things I'm talking about today are still pertinent to me now in my fly fishing life. So although these are things that would be super good for you to pick up if you are just starting fly fishing or you're thinking about starting fly fishing, these are also things that you very well may be able to incorporate into who you are, what you're doing right now. So let's dive into them and we can talk about it. Oh, real quick, just want to mention this. Uh, so when when I... At, 200 plus episodes, it's not super easy to navigate back into the catalog. And I get that. And it's really not easy on my website. The reason being is because I switched my hosting platform uh, a couple years ago. And so everything that was in the old queue is still there. You just can't access it through the website in any easy, reasonable form. So you're better off going into iTunes or into Audible or Spotify or whatever it is and searching in that app as opposed to doing it on my website. You can find them on the website and then you can go in and plug that in in your your app and you can find them that way. That's actually how I have to do it. I haven't uh, 
really figured out an easier way or a more efficient way. And very few people, I think, listen to actually statistically looking at how and where people listen. No one listens on their desktop. Very few people do. If you're one of those people, thanks for doing that. But by and large, it's people using an app. So again, if you are looking for a particular topic, you can search for it on the search bar on castingacross.com, find that podcast, and then go plug that podcast title into your favorite app. Fun little technological detail there for you. All right, three things that I wish I knew when I started fly fishing. The first one is to buy balanced gear. Buy balanced gear. Uh, I think this is something that is very common. People like to go into a fly shop and they say, give me a rod, give me a reel, give me a line. And it's very easy to do that. And more often than not, I would say 75%, that's my strict empirical data, it's going to work out great. But there's times where it's not going to work out. And you actually run across this, uh, not so much these days, because a lot of manufacturers have, have realized that people are, are, aren't going to just buy something packaged. But you would run into this like, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there would be a series of, of fly rods, um, say it was a, a mid-priced, a three or $400 series of fly rods. And there was the, the one, two, three weight and four or five, six weight and all the way up until the heavy saltwater rods. And there's maybe even a two-handed option that was thrown in there. Well, what the manufacturer would do is they would find the uh, similarly priced within their levels of reels and pair them with those rods. Now, you ran into an issue if there was no reel that was well suited for that two and three weight, if it really started at a four, five, six, or if there was no real good spay reel that would go with that two-handed rod. And so what they would do is they would either give something comparable within that uh, line of reels, or they would throw in something different. And you would look at the, the price point and it would jump up $55, $75. People say, why is that? It's because they were actually seeking to find something that matches well. And that's an example of uh, the manufacturer or the fly shop doing a good job and trying to pair a rod with a reel in the way that's going to work. Um, but that's not always going to happen. And so that's just something that I think is worth being aware of. Um, at one point in time, I liked the idea of having a rod and a reel from the same brand. Now, that might sound crazy to you. Well, that was something silly that I did when I started fly fishing. I thought if I get a rod from Orvis, I need to get a reel from Orvis, I need to get a line from Orvis. Um, or, you, you know, insert brand here. Or I got really antsy. And once I got a rod, I wanted to get a reel for it ASAP because I wanted to use it and use it well. Finding a reel that balances with a rod matters a lot. It matters a whole lot, especially if you're going to be casting a lot, especially if it's a lightweight rod, especially if it's a saltwater rod. For different reasons, you're going to want a reel that balances well. And what do I mean by balance? It's not too heavy, such that you are going to you're, you're going to lose sensitivity in your cast and in your rod tip, the kind of things that you need for good, accurate casts, as well as sensitivity to what's happening with your line and your fly. But if it is too light, then it's going to be tip heavy and you're going to have the exact opposite. You're going to run into sensitivity issues and it is also just going to have wear and tear on your arm. So those are the kind of things that you want to find the precisely perfect reel for that rod. Are you going to need to get out some sort of scale that takes things down to the gram? No, but by feel, you should be able to figure this out. Similarly with line, and I, I herald the value of good line all the time. Find a fly shop that will let you cast different fly lines. Or once you know fly lines that you like, figure out those tapers and then try to match them with things that are available in the uh, rod weight that you are buying for. And once you mesh those things up, then find exactly what you want. And when I say exactly, it's a little bit of hyperbole. Find within reason what you want. 
you're going to be much happier finding a balanced outfit. So take your fly right into the fly shop. Say, I bought this and I want to find a reel for it. Um, they're not going to be offended. Hopefully they're not going to be offended. Any fly shop worth its salt is not going to be offended if you walk in with a rod you already own or a rod that you just bought because you're looking to buy a reel from them. Uh, just make sure you buy a reel from them. Don't play around with their reel, put it back, and then go home and buy it online. Uh, that's worth the $10 or whatever extra you're going to be spending um, and any expertise and information that they have. And there's other things that, that are worth considering also. Um, this doesn't happen a lot, but I've found real feet that don't fit into the real seats of rods. Um, and usually you're able to jam it and kind of tweak it with pliers, but that's just so silly after spending a couple hundred dollars on something. So that's just another simple consideration to look at. Make sure everything balances. If you have one rod that you love a line with, then it's not necessarily going to be a immediate match made in heaven if you buy a new rod. The flex profile is different. The taper of the rod is different. Even the taper of the line is the same. And so those are just things to think about and consider and, uh, you know, things that I wish I would have known about when I was doing a lot of catalog shopping early on in my fly fishing life. So buy balanced stuff. It's always a, a good thing. And I guess to double back to something that I mentioned earlier, um, these days I've been very impressed with what manufacturers put out, the, the, the pairings of rod, reel, and line. I would say that more often than not, the line is the short straw in that equation. Uh, the one thing that I would tweak, but even even still, there's some like pre-made combos where it all comes in like a, a plastic package where the line is the top-notch fly line. It's you know the the kind of the step up from the bottom for the rod, the step up from the bottom from the the reel. But the line's really good, so uh, just check those out. I'm not saying this to detract you from buying or deter you, excuse me, from buying you know everything in one fell swoop, but uh, especially if you're buying something high end. Uh, everything mid-range and above. Uh, go out and find exactly what you want. You're, you'll, you'll be happy for that. It'll work better too. All right, secondly, uh, something I wish I would have done more when I started fly fishing is making observations. This is particularly with trout, but I would say this with other species as well within the warm water world. Um, pay attention to what fish you're catching where which species you're catching under which circumstances and when you're catching different kinds of fish. So uh, there, there's times where you'll be fishing a run of a stream that's stocked and you catch out of that run with the exact same fly, with the exact same presentation, a brown trout, a brook trout, and a rainbow trout. If you live out west, you know you're catching a brown trout and a brook trout and a rainbow trout and a cutthroat trout. Uh, and and it's it just seems kind of random. And there are times and there are situations and there are environmental conditions and factors wherein you will catch all three, all four, maybe even more than that species doing the exact same thing. But I think we can all acknowledge that there is a pretty big difference between brown trout and rainbow trout and how they feed, how they act, when they spawn, where they like to spawn, where they like to hang out, what they do in high water conditions, their temperature preferences, their food preferences, their predation preferences when it comes to pursuing bait fish. And then you add brook trout in and you have an entire other set of variables to think about. Cutthroat might act a lot like rainbows under most, most circumstances, but not necessarily always. Uh, and there may be even significant differences strain to strain of any one of the fish that we just mentioned. And so I wish I would have started paying attention to these differences 
earlier on. Uh, it used to be I was just content with catching a fish. And if it was particularly colored up, then I got really happy about that. Uh, if I had already caught two out of the three species, I was just kind of looking forward to catching that third species. So I could say, oh, I caught all three trout species that live in the stream. But one of the things that you probably are aware of and that I am aware of is that these fish all have different preferences for where they live, how they eat, and all the other aspects of their life. And this is something that the more you pay attention to it, you can kind of key in on where fish might be. So if you are fishing in a stream that's primarily filled with brown trout and you catch a rainbow trout, then although it's a good thing to say that, hey, I caught this rainbow trout, but if you know there's just not a lot of rainbows in there, it you you might want to stop doing what you are doing if you haven't caught more fish. So track with me what I'm saying here. This happened to me recently. There's a, a river up here in Massachusetts that uh, it's mostly wild brown trout and they stock some rainbows. But by the time you get to like summer and uh, fall, especially, you're just you're not going to get rainbows. And so I was fishing a, a streamer, an unweighted streamer, kind of high up in the water column, and I caught a rainbow trout. And I was like, all right, I figured this stream out. I know there's lots of brown trout in here. Uh, I know there's lots of trout in here. I just cut this rainbow. I'm, I'm going to be good to go. So I kept fishing that pattern, fishing that pattern, fishing that pattern. And I did not catch another thing. And I'm thinking, what is wrong? I know there's fish in here. What am I doing? Well, I switched up my approach, went deeper, and I just started catching brown trout. Now, could it be that I just caught that one rainbow trout that was sitting high up in the water column, and there's other rainbow trout down intermixed with those brown trout in the deeper water that simply didn't take my fly? Yes, that's a possibility. But I'm pretty confident that by switching up my presentation and, and switching up my pattern, I got into where a particular species of fish was. Um, I found this also with, you know, if there's a feeder creek that you find more fish in of one species up in the nose of where that feeder creek enters into the larger creek, or you find other species above it. Um, some of that might have to do with refuge. Some of that might have to do with thermal needs. But you pay attention to those things and you start to kind of compile a really good composite perspective of fish behavior and fish location. And the more and more you do that, the more you have you have rules to draw from and you have a catalog of exceptions to those rules that you're able to tap into the more and more you fish. So the same thing is true with warm water species. Um, guys who are, are, you know, out fishing big lakes, uh, they know exactly where the smallmouth are going to be and the largemouth are going to be. They know where the sunfish are going to be. They know where the toothy fish are going to be. Uh, part of that is because they're using, uh, you know, electronics and they're they're seeing things under the water. Um, but whether you're using electronics or not, whether you're fly fishing or you're using conventional gear, to know the bottom substrate and how that will attract different fish, how smallmouth, generally speaking, are going to want the rockier water with a little bit of current, and the largemouth are going to want the slower water with a softer substrate, then you're not just casting blindly. If you know that the the, the largemouth are looking up, um, then you're going to throw your frog patterns and your topwater bugs into the, the slower water where it's muddier, and you're going to throw your streamers uh, into that uh, the gravel with a little bit of current or maybe where there's a little bit of uh, wind on the water because the smallmouth might have moved into that area. And it's just simple things like that. Again, exceptions to both of those rules, but things where you start to think, okay, I'm probably going to catch fish either way. 
but can I increase my chances of getting on fish and having a fly that is better suited maybe to the size of fish? If I know that the smallmouth in this particular pond max out at like 14 or 16 inches, I'm not going to tie a huge fly on. I'm going to maybe make it smaller and fish in that particular spot where I anticipate there be smallmouth. And, and you are simply playing the odds and increasing your ability to get onto fish because you've been paying attention to where different species might be. Does this mean that you shouldn't just fish? No, just fish. Have fun. But uh, I, I wish I would have had a little bit more of a deliberate uh, cataloging of where I caught different species going back years and years because I think that really could have paid off in a lot of situations in some diverse fisheries that had a variety of habitats where different fish species, even different trout species, uh, kind of found their niches along an entire ecosystem. All right, so the first thing I mentioned is buying balanced gear. Second thing I mentioned was knowing more about species observations. Third and finally for this week's podcast of things I wish I would have known and done better and still do better is take better pictures. Take better pictures. What do I mean by this? Well, I don't mean uh, necessarily getting some sort of fancy rig like a GoPro on your chest or a selfie stick or some sort of timed camera so that I have a picture of me holding my fish and smiling at the camera or much more appropriate, me holding a fish looking morose in the camera. I've mentioned this before, but I feel like it's been a couple of weeks or months or maybe even years uh, since I've mentioned it, but I do not understand. This is a rant, so bear with me. Why people take pictures of themselves holding fish or have people take pictures of them holding fish with a scowl on their face or just like a dead fish look on their face. I see it every once in a while and I kind of like just want to unfollow or click X or whatever, get rid of, of that. I just can't wrap my mind around it. If this is what you do and you're like, oh, this is the reason why I do it. There's some existential purpose for me scowling with a picture of myself holding a fish. I'd like to know. I can't wrap my head around it. You don't have to smile a big cheesy grin, but at least, you know, have some joy, a sparkle in your eye that you've been engaging in this wonderful pursuit we call fly fishing. All right, I'll be done with that for now. I'm sure I'll revisit it here in the future. Anyway, what I mean by taking better pictures is finding things that are unique, looking for beauty and capturing that beauty so that bare minimum, you can click back and look at it. Notice I'm not even necessarily talking about fish. Um, and, and, and I'm not even talking about pictures of me. I'm talking about rivers, talking about bridges and feeder creeks and interesting rock structures and all these things that I just, I enjoy in the moment so much and I take them in and rightfully so I don't not fiddle with my phone or, you know, rewind 20 years, not fiddling with a disposable camera. I'm taking these moments in, but I would appreciate it now, and certainly to a certain degree because of casting across and kind of having some media stuff that I'm doing, it'd be great to have a deeper catalog of, of photographs. But for my own personal enjoyment, like I look back at some trips I, I took, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, and I look at like the seven pictures I, I took and I think, man, what was I doing? I had a camera. Why didn't I take more pictures? Especially like in the last few years with a smartphone. I take pictures of all sorts of dumb stuff. I take pictures of food. I don't post on the internet. Don't worry. And, you know, I take pictures of of my kids being silly, uh, which is which is good. But you know, compared to maybe some pictures of a stream, uh, some pictures of of places where I go and I'm on the water, 
and even little things like not necessarily a picture to show how enormous a fish is, uh, not even to like a picture of me with that fish, but you know, I caught a fish and it had a really cool coloration on its, on its dorsal fin. All right, well drop it in the water, snap a quick picture of it and, and, you know, make sure that you're doing what you should be doing so that, that it comes out well. Um, having the right tool in these days, a smartphone is going to do it for you, but just lots of little things like that. Pictures of a, a road sign with a shotgun blast through it, things that just made you smile. These are things that I wish I had page after page after page, you know, gigabyte after gigabyte of memories that I have in my head. But, you know, as as the, the memory fills up and as more pertinent things uh, are, are taking up that space and as the, the RAM, if, if I were to continue that analogy, uh, isn't working as fast as it maybe once was, it would be awesome to have those things as a record to share with myself, to share with my kids, to share with you through casting across. And so that's something that I wish I would have done a better job at early on is, uh, is done that. And maybe I did do a good job at it. Maybe they're just all in, in a box down in the basement in like those sleeves from when you used to take your disposable camera to the, uh, the drugstore, you threw it in the box, and they'd give you that, you know, that packet with all the, um, what are they called? The the film, the negatives, and then you know the the doubles of the poorly exposed pictures that you took. They might they might exist down there. That would be a fun thing to go through. But I'm sure there's a really, really set of bad stuff down there too, as far as quality of, of photographs. But that's the third thing that I would mention. So in review, things I wish I would have known. One, buy balanced gear. Uh, take your time to find things that fit together. Lean on the manufacturer's recommendations. Lean on the fly shop employee's recommendations, but definitely try it out yourself to make sure it works. Secondly, pay attention to different species and how they act, where you find them, how you caught them. Saying you caught a fish is good, and there's nothing wrong with that. But saying I caught a smallmouth under these circumstances is a little bit better. Saying I caught a brown trout under these circumstances is a, is, is a little bit better. So whether that be just in your head, if you're good at memorizing those things, or if you have a little fishing journal, then that would be a great thing too. And thirdly, take more, better pictures. I'm not saying grip and grins, although there's nothing wrong with that. I have no problem with doing that, but try to find a way to capture your experience bare minimum for your enjoyment at a later time. Uh, who knows what that might bring back in, in your, your memories, and you'll be able to look back at your time on the water and appreciate it as you are you know, a day, a week, a month, a year removed from it, or 10 years. This week on castingacross.com. The first article that came out was on Monday, and it was called Trout Routes Mapping Angling Adventure. All right, so I'm going to mention Trout Routes here at the end of the podcast, uh, but Trout Routes, um, you've probably heard of it because it is the premier trout fishing app out there, and it is something that I was once skeptical of, and so that's actually part of the reason for this article. Uh, I uh, talked to somebody at from Trout Routes at a couple of the fly fishing shows, and I was basically grilling them on, you know, what do you do with my data? Uh, do, can people see where I fish? And is this one of those things where people are showing me where they fished? And thankfully, they said, nope, you've got us wrong. You've gotten us confused for somebody else. All Trout Routes is, is a mapping software platform. But it's also so much more than that in that they are incredibly detailed maps. There's access points, 
there's access points that are private, which I think is super cool that they give you these, you know, bridges or they give you driveways and things like that. They say, yes, this is here, but you can't use it because as you're trying to get yourself oriented, if you see there's an access point and you're driving along and you say, okay, there's an access point I'm going to come up on um, and you just go to the next turnoff, but it happens to be private, then you're in the wrong place. But if what they do is they point out there's, you know, there's a bridge here, a bridge here, but you can't use these bridges. You can use the third bridge. Now, you know, and you have a great overlay of your experience with uh, what you can actually use. But that's just one example. There's real-time stream gauges. Uh, there is um, special regulations that they're doing that state by state. They haven't hit all 48 states yet with that, but they are adding that more and more. So uh, I'll say a few more things about trout routes at the end of this podcast, and I anticipate talking about it a little bit more as we get into the season and as I use it a little bit more uh, as, as my fishing starts. So that is Monday's article, Trout Routes Mapping Angling Adventure. Wednesday's article is called Hellbent on Conservation. Hellbent on Conservation. Uh, actually, the inspiration for this was the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources. It used to be the Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries for years and years and years. And I, I can't keep track of what they've changed it to. DWR, I think, is their their initials. But they have an art contest featuring the Hellbender Salamander. If you don't know what the Hellbender Salamander looks like, then you are missing out. Google it, the Hellbender Salamander. Even better, go to castingcross.com, go to Wednesday's article, Hellbutton Conservation. You can look at this creepy, weird-looking critter that gets over two feet long. All right? So if you're in Appalachia, there could be a two-foot-long salamander just chilling, which is nothing like what they have in uh, in Asia. I mean, there's there's salamanders that are bigger than all four of my kids over there, but um, we're not there. We're in Appalachia. We got big salamanders here. Why write about salamanders on a fly fishing website? Well, it's because there's a lot of crossover with the conservation of these fish, the places that these fish live, places in which these fish thrive with trout. Conservation, living, and thriving. So check that article out. This week's recommendation on the podcast, as I mentioned earlier, is Trout Routes. Go to Trout Routes, actually troutinsights.com, and you are able to access a free version of Trout Routes. Um, it's going to be limited, limited time, all that, but it gives you a flavor. It is looks like Google Maps, but the depth of information that's there, based on your state, based on you know where you where you fish is going to vary a little bit but they are bulking this up more and more every day they have hundreds and hundreds of resources that you have access to so uh, they they're very upfront with this all the resources that they plug into trout routes you can go out and get but you know if 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 you've ever had the guidebook with the state regs with the topographic map with the fly shop report all that stuff open at one point in time you're going to also realize that at least one of your resources is going to be out of date by maybe a year maybe 5 years i mean i have resources the latest version of it is probably 10 years out of date so trout route takes all that sort of stuff synthesizes it combines it keeps it up to date the best of their ability and they can put it on your desktop as well as on your phone you can download for offline use, you can go and use it when you're on the water. And to, uh, in addition to that, it's all the things I mentioned earlier when I was talking about the article. And there's so much more that you can you can read as you go to both my article and go to, to Trout Routes to check that out. I'll put a link to Trout Routes on this podcast's show notes on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.